November 6, 2013, Thomas Patterson and David King from the Harvard Kennedy School presented a seminar titled, Too Many Checks, No Balance, Partisan Brinkmanship or Shrinking Presidency as the New Normal. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy Public Dialogue series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. of gridlock in the U.S. Congress. Too many checks, no balance, question mark, or in this case it's a colon, it should be a question mark. Uh, this is uh, a talk sponsored by the Ash Center as part of our series on the challenges to American democracy. Uh, we will be over the next two years exploring, trying to understand what the most significant challenges to American democracy are. We will be exploring, we have done a series of events already on uh, inequality. We will be exploring other challenges to American democracy, such as the system of checks and balances and uh, the problem of polarization and gridlock, which we'll talk about a little bit today. Uh, challenges such as immigration, new technologies, um, the balance between the presidency and the other branches of government, and a number of challenges. So uh, stay tuned for that. Our effort and our intention there is to highlight for discussion in the Kennedy School community, but also beyond, uh, highlight uh, understanding of the most important challenges to democracy, but importantly, to try to explore ideas about how to solve some of those problems as well. Um, at the Ash Center, we have a broad uh, span of coverage across many issues and many areas. Next week, the next talk in our Ash Democracy uh, seminar series will be Bijou Rao from the World Bank next Wednesday over at the Ash Center. And he will be talking about participation at the local level in India and the realities and challenges of extending governments down to the local level. And then <clears throat> the next event in our series on American democracy will be December 6th. And it will be a film screening with a little bit of a discussion over at the Carpenter Center of Harvard University. If you haven't been there, you should uh, right. try to make it out. It will be December 6th, and we will be uh, sponsoring with the Harvard Film Archive a screening of All the King's Men. So uh, please come to that. Today, it's uh, my great pleasure to uh, introduce two colleagues, valued colleagues in the democratic politics and institution area, of which uh, Tony and I are part. The first speaker will be Tom Patterson, who's the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press. Uh, you should check out his just-released book just a month ago, I think, right? Informing the News. 27 days. 27 days. Not that anyone's <laughs> Informing the News. And in that book, Tom argues that the current system of journalism in the United States is not performing its democratic function of giving accurate information so that citizens can act with good political knowledge. It's doing a number of other things, which I guess are not quite as good. Um, you should go out and buy it on Amazon now. In an earlier book, The Vanishing Voter, Tom looked at the causes and consequences of electoral participation. Uh, in a book before that, Out of Order, he received the American Political Science Association's Graeber Award as the best book of the decade in political communication. His first book, The Unseeing Eye, was named by the American Association for Public Opinion Research as one of the 50 most influential books on public opinion in the last half century. David King is a senior lecturer in public policy 
here, and he is the faculty chair of the Masters in Public Administration program. Uh, he is an expert on the U.S. Congress, and David uh, not only studies Congress, but helps to build Congress. He chairs Harvard's bipartisan program for newly elected members of U.S. Congress, and he also directs the executive program for senior executives in state and local government here at the Kennedy School. In the wake of the 2000 elections, David directed the task force on election administration for the National Commission on Electoral Reform, uh, chaired by former presidents Gerald uh, Ford and Jimmy Carter. And fortunately, on his work on that commission, he was able to solve all of America's electoral <laughs> problems, so we don't need to worry about um, that. Um, he later oversaw an evaluation and uh, new management structure for the Boston Election Department, and he served on the advisory board of americanselect.org. Uh, Okay, so today we're here to talk about um, gridlock and the problem of uh, Congress, and Congress in particular not being able to get anything done. Um, this is an issue that affects each and every one of us every day, and in particular this past month. Um, the dysfunction of Congress, uh, as everybody knows, culminated in the shutdown of the whole federal government for more than a week uh, a few weeks ago. There is ample evidence to show that Congress does not work. A few indicators. In public opinion, for example, approval of Congress is at historic lows. Congress is less popular than cockroaches and having an open wound. In terms of output and productivity, we like uh, that kind of thing at the Kennedy School. This Congress is passing far, far fewer laws than any prior Congress. Um, now we'll try to understand what the additional dimensions of this problem of congressional dysfunction and gridlock are, and then uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, entertain at least some possible solutions or at least ways to make progress on that problem. So please welcome first Tom and then David. Yeah, Archon, thank you. Um, Archon's, you know, took a mark into the uh, title of the talk. I, I tinkered a little bit more than that. Um, <laughs> and this is kind of a play on words, as you're going to find out. But I, I think one of our big problems is too much balance, but it's not quite in the context of checks and balances. Uh, and uh, I think we're very much uh, in this country in a, in a struggle over the uh, which direction. Uh, so last Friday, David Axelrod here. Many of you know David Axelrod was a top presidential advisor. And uh, in the course of, and he was here for Peter Hart's uh, class, and Peter was nice enough to invite me to sit in. And, uh, now don't, don't take this to be the way David fully thinks uh, about the presidency. I'm using this as more a counterpoint. But here's what he said, and I paraphrase it because I wasn't taking exact notes during the course of that. But, uh, what he was saying, basically, what really surprised him was the degree to which the White House really was responding to what was going on out there at the moment. You know, you know whether it was the automobile, the problem in Detroit with the automobile industry or Syria or whatever, uh, really driving the presidency. Uh, what I want to say is I think this is a really short-sighted view of what's going on with the presidency or, or thinking about the presidency. This one comes a little bit closer to the way that I look at the presidency. And this is something that uh, Bill Clinton had said, and the key here is history, not events, uh, as kind of a big driver that shapes the presidency. 
you know, maybe it's that Clinton uh, is a better student of history than Axelrod. I, I think, I, again, I, I think I did a disservice, but I needed it up there as a counterpoint. But, <laughs> you know, if you think about our institutions, I think none of our institutions has had such varying uh, characterizations as the presidency. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the Nixon presidency. That was the imperial presidency. When you get the Ford and the Carter presidencies, we've got an imperiled presidency. We get Reagan, we've got a heroic presidency. That loops back to Kennedy and the heroic presidency of, of uh, <coughs> Kennedy. And then uh, after the 94 uh, midterm elections, uh, some of you may remember the Time Magazine or maybe a Newsweek cover, uh, one of the two, Bill Clinton's about this big on the cover. Uh, it's the incredible shrinking presidency, and of course this was when they were talking about Washington being driven by New Cambridge rather than uh, by Bill Clinton out of the White House. And increasingly now, we also hear about the shrinking presidency of, uh, of Barack Obama. Uh, something else to think about, hearing from the people. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have the office next door uh, to Peter Hart, who's here with us this semester. Uh, he's the pollster for NBC and Wall Street Journal and, and other polls as well, but those two or his public face. Uh, Peter's one of the best pollsters ever. Uh, so they did two polls in October uh, around the government shutdown. They did one about the time the shutdown was occurring, and then they thought it was so important to go back uh, and see what the American people were thinking with a little bit of distance from it. So this is the Wall Street Journal poll from late October, uh, and uh, it appeared in on NBC News Thursday night, last Thursday night, and in the Wall Street Journal. Friday morning, and one of the questions that was asked in the poll, and this was an open-ended question, you know, most polls you've seen, their first choice, are you a Republican, Democrat, Independent, or what, do you approve, disapprove of this, and that, and so on. This was an open-ended question. Uh, and the question was, in a few words or a short phrase, what lessons do you hope that President Obama and the Democrats learned from the confrontation over the budget and the recent government shutdown? Uh, and this is what's called a word cloud. Uh, this is, and the larger the phrase, the more often it was voiced by the, the people they were talking with. So you get, listen to the people, compromise, work together. Uh, and then they asked uh, the same question, except instead of about uh, Obama and the Democrats, Speaker John Boehner and the Republicans. And what do we see in the word cloud? Listen to the people, work together, compromise. That suggests, if you're talking to the American people, that the problem is with them and not also with us. Uh, that the problem is pretty much confined to the people who are in elected office. Uh, that we've kind of got our game together, and, and we know what needs to be done, and, uh, and they're not so clued in, uh, cued in to, to what needs to be done. I think this is a better indicator. Uh, this comes from the same poll, and this is the question, who's the problem, right? Who's the problem uh, in Washington? Uh, and around the shutdown particularly. So is it President Obama that's the problem? Well, not very many Democrats think so, only about 3%. Lots of Republicans think that President Obama was the problem in the shutdown. Then is the problem the Congressional Republicans? Democrats say yes, it's the Congressional Republicans. Republicans don't think so. So uh, very different views, right? This is more around polarization. These are, these, are, these are kind of polarized opinions or attitudes about who's to blame for the shutdown. And so what I want to do during my time is to talk about party polarization because I think it's the kind of the large context of which we're operating. 
And I want to ask the question, kind of how deep does it run uh, in, in the United States? So run, I want to run you through fairly quickly through some charts so that there's time left for David to say a couple of words here. Today. <laughs> so I'm not going to explain where, these, where, these, where all these data come from, but this is a map of kind of the ideology of Congress. Uh, the red line is the House of Representatives. Uh, the blue line is the, uh, is the Senate. This starts uh, late in the 19th century, 1879, and runs through uh, roughly the time that we're in. The higher up here you are, the further apart the parties are in the Congress of the United States. Uh, there's more conflict. There's, there, there, there's more division between the parties. The lower, the more their, the distance really shrinks between the parties. There, there's more bipartisanship, if you will. Uh, and if you look at this, what you see is a really high level of polarization in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and then a period of bipartisanship that kind of kicks in roughly in 1940 or so, goes through pretty much the end of the 70s, and then polarization in Congress begins to increase. So that in some ways we're back to pretty much the same pattern of, the, of 100 and 125 years ago. Uh, here's a little more understandable uh, version of this, and uh, what I've done here is just take out a year from that chart. Uh, this is 1973-74, this is 40 years ago, during that period of bipartisanship. Uh, and this is the House only, and this shows the distribution of the House members on the liberal-conservative scale. Uh, and the point to the part of this chart that's interesting is that you can see that there are some Democrats who are more conservative than some of the Republicans. And there are some Republicans who are more liberal than some of the Democrats. You had overlapping coalitions within the, within the Congress of the, of the United States. Here's the picture from the last full term of Congress, 2011 and 2012. Uh, now, Poole and Rosenthal, who from where this data, the data created this data, they did from the very first Congress to the most recent Congress. This is the first time that there's been no overlap. The Senate shows the same pattern. There's no overlap, meaning that the least conservative, and this on roll call votes, and that, that can be one indicator, other indicators would show a little bit of overlap, but on roll call votes, the least conservative Republican is more conservative in his or her voting patterns uh, than the most conservative of the Democrats. And you can look at it from the other direction as well. So you've been hearing a little bit about, let's say, Peter King recently. You know, Peter King's probably about here, somewhere in this end of the, of the spectrum. Where are those blue dog Democrats from the border states? And they're here. Uh, but even Peter King votes in a more conservative fashion than do the blue dog Democrats on average. So what about the public? Has polarization uh, trickled down to the American people? Uh, some political scientists argue no, or at least not very much trickled down. Uh, there was a book that was written a few years ago, maybe he's changed his mind by now, I don't know, um, by uh, Mulphy Arena, who was here at Harvard, now is at Stanford, uh, and it was Culture Wars, question mark, the myth of uh, polarization in America. Uh, and he argues that the American public is by and large pretty moderate, pretty much given to compromise, not caught up in what's going on at the elite level. His point was that almost all the polarization is taking place uh, among the people in office 
people around those people, the activists in party politics, but for the most part, we, the people, are kind of unmarked by some of these larger trends. Uh, I'm not among that people who, who buy that argument. So let's look at abortion opinions and what's happened over time to abortion attitudes. Now, <clears throat> the way this question is asked in the Gallup polls, there's three options that you have. Uh, one is illegal in all circumstances. Second, legal in some circumstances. Third, legal in all circumstances. So I've only picked out one of those. You'll see the same pattern with the other two, but it simplifies it. <coughs> this is 1973, right? This is Roe v. Wade. That's, that's where this issue kind of enters the political arena. What's interesting in the early going is there's not much difference. There's not much polarization in the opinions or the attitudes of Republicans and Democrats uh, about the abortion issue. But then it starts to widen, and in the last decade plus, it's widened quite substantially. Uh, so that now you have a quite, quite a bit of distance between Republicans and Democrats on that issue. The immigration, uh, and you can, there are a number of different ways of uh, asking about immigration. To me, this is the toughest one. Uh, because we're all, almost all of us, as you can see, are for more border security. Um, you know, even if you're quite liberal on this issue, often you also like to tighten the borders a bit. You don't want just porous borders. So you can see that even Republicans and Democrats alike up here in the 70 to 80 percent man on, on maintaining control over our borders. But what's important about this chart is you can see Republicans and Democrats track pretty closely together. But now they're widening. The gap is widening. There's polarization. They're moving in different directions uh, on that particular issue. Here's another one. This is my favorite. Uh, I got to tell you, uh, heard disclosure. I'm a Democrat, so I, uh, I like this one better than most uh, most charts. But uh, <laughs> this one comes out of. Uh, this is a two-part question. The first part of the question is, do you think it's happening or not? Do you think global warming is going? On? Yes or no? Kind of that kind of thing. And then if you say yes. Well, what's causing it? Is this being driven by natural causes, or is this being driven by human activity? So what I've charted up here are the percentage of Republicans and Democrats who say both, one, it's happening, and second, that we're largely to blame for. And what you can see is there's not a lot of change. This is Kyoto. This is when it becomes a political issue. This is that first international significant international climate change conference where they started to talk about putting controls on carbon emissions, right? So this is when it kind of enters the political arena. You know, scientists were talking about it back there in the 80s, uh, but it really hadn't become a political issue until Kyoto. And what you see, and by the way, it widens around El Gore and the inconvenient truth, uh, with Democrats kind of saying he's right, and the Republicans <laughs> moving in the other other direction almost like to say, not only is he wrong, he's dead wrong about this sort of thing. But what you see today on this issue is a huge gap between Republicans and Democrats. Those are polarized attitudes. Um, now, uh, another one. This is a shorter time span. Um, this is a little bit before, so you have to put his uh, up there. but. So January of 03, uh, we invaded in March of 03. Uh, mistake uh, to go, is that a wrong decision to go into Iraq? Not very many Republicans thought so. Quite a few Democrats thought so. Two years out, and of course this is when we don't find any WMDs, things start to go really kind of haywire there. 
you don't see very much change on the part of Republicans in terms of whether this is a wrong decision or not. But Democrats are moving quickly to the conclusion that was a mistake. Uh, again, a widening of the opinion gap between Republicans and Democrats, Democrats' polarization. Now, I want to give you one that's from the time when we were more bipartisan. So, was Vietnam a mistake? Uh, you know, this was a divisive issue. This was a polarizing issue in a sense. But what this chart shows is that it didn't kind of neatly divide along party lines. Uh, so, this is 1965. This is the Gulf of Tonkin. This is when Lyndon Johnson basically says, we're going to do the buildup in Vietnam. Uh, I've got 67. I probably should have plotted 68. 68 was the Tet Offensive year. That's when public opinion began to change. But what you see is Americans gradually moved away from that war, support for the war, thinking it was a mistake. Uh, but Republicans and Democrats uh, did it in pretty close step in terms of thinking about what's going on in Vietnam. Now, I could probably find four issues that would show you exactly the opposite, or I could, I could probably come up with four that would show not much change, uh, very little polarization. Uh, so to kind of up the ante here a little bit, what I have up here are the results of the Pew Values Survey. This is a survey they do every five years. Uh, and in that survey, they ask a cross-section of Americans 48 different questions. Some are about issues, some are lifestyle, for example, you know, how religious are you, things like that. So, but if you take all 48 of those questions and look for the average difference between Republicans and Democrats on those 48 questions, there's been a difference all along, right? This is the first survey. On average, a 10 percentage point difference between the Republicans and Democrats. But you look at it over time, and it's almost doubled. Uh, and this is on a wide range of indicators, uh, expressions of opinion. And then here's three of the 48. Uh, and I picked these three because I think this is part of the heart of the difference between the Republicans. All of these relate in one way or another about the role of the federal government. So this is a question about uh, the safety net. The question reads roughly kind of, do you think the federal government has a responsibility to take care of those who can't take care of themselves adequately? Uh, yes, no, kind of that kind of question. Well, Republicans and Democrats have always differed a little bit on that question about how big uh, the safety net should be, right? But you can see this is 1987 and this is 2012. That gap between Republicans and Democrats has widened considerably. Equal opportunity, this is a question of whether the federal government ought to be in the business of helping the historically disadvantaged to have opportunities. Again, a party difference in 1987, much wider today. <coughs> And then just simply about kind of how big this darn thing should be, uh, this thing we call the federal government. Not a big difference, and this is interesting. This is 1987. This is in the kind of the waning period of the Reagan presidency, which very much was around the size of government. And there are differences between the Republicans and Democrats, but it's much, much larger today. Again, this is polarization. So the problem, though, with looking at issues and kind of making too many judgments about issues is that the salience of any particular issue changes over time. And sometimes it's very salient, sometimes it's less on our minds, and that can contaminate 
uh, when you look at the same issue at various points in time, you know, it may be that it was highly salient then and less salient now. And as we stop or stop thinking about issues, they kind of go out of our mind and the like. And so <clears throat> this one is the one that I like, and this is something that's always with us, and this is uh, our president. Uh, and whether we approve or disapprove of the job that the president is doing. Um, and Gallup has been asking this question since the mid-1940s. Uh, the question is roughly, do you approve or disapprove of the job that President Obama is doing? Pretty simple question. Uh, won't surprise you to hear that never in the history of the Gallup poll have the partisans of the opposite party thought the president was doing a better job than the partisans of his party. Right? So Republicans always like the Republican president's performance better than Democrats do and vice versa. Um, I'm going to skip to this one. <clears throat> it shows the whole range. So I didn't pick up Truman, which was probably a mistake, but I did pick it up with Eisenhower. Again, it started in the mid-40s, so uh, they didn't have enough on the road. They have some on Roosevelt's, but not very stable. So, but picking it up with Eisenhower, the important point here in this chart is that if you look at these presidents, there's a gap between Republicans and Democrats in the degree to which they approve of the job that the president is doing. Uh, but it actually is within a relatively narrow range. Uh, right. And then with Clinton, what we see is the gap really widens. Democrats really like what he's doing and Republicans really don't like what he's doing. And then George W. Bush gets into office and it widens even further. Republicans really like what he's doing and Democrats don't. Uh, and then we've got Obama and it continues to push itself up. The Democrats embracing what he's doing and Republicans not. And you think about what it takes to get up into this range. Yeah. You got a, almost a 70% difference. Uh, what are you talking about? You probably got 85% of Democrats saying, really good job, Mr. Obama, and only about 15% of Republicans think the president uh, knows what he's doing. Um, so why does it matter? Uh, why is this important uh, to the larger discussion we're going to have? Um, some political scientists, more so in the past than today, proposed something that was called the responsible party argument. They like what I just showed you. Uh, and here's the way that argument goes. It, it is that the parties ought to differ. The differences ought to be relatively clear. Uh, and if they are, then the voters understand their choice. They have a clear choice. Uh, they can make their pick. The party gets into office. They can either act on what it says it acts on the values that it, that it proclaims, or it doesn't. You come to the next election, and then you judge that party by whether they essentially kept their promise. And that gets really murky if the parties overlap, overlap a lot, right? There's, there's less difference between the two. It's harder to see what that is. Um, and then in making this argument, and again, it's mostly a historical argument, but in making the argument, they would go and look at Europe, uh, where the parties are more sharply defined and where you have more clarity for the voters, often more choices, too, as many of you know. Um, but I think there's some problems with that argument. Um, first of all, that's a parliamentary system that they're making the comparison to. And in a, in a parliamentary system, you combine executive and legislative power. Right. So they're always joined. We have a presidential system uh, in which we divide power. Uh, and we divide it three ways, actually the executive, and then we split the legislative power right between the Senate and the House. So we've got three pieces that you have to put together 
uh, to get legislation. Now, what are you going to get out of that? Are you going to get compromise or are you going to get deadline? Well, it, this system was designed for compromise. Uh, if you read the writings around the uh, formation of the Constitution, it was all about compromise. That if you have these checks and balances in the system, then interest groups are going to have to work together. Uh, and therefore, in the end, you're going to benefit a wider range of society uh, than otherwise. Um, but you can get deadlocked out of this system, too. Uh, you can get this system really to kind of grind to a halt. And the variable that really comes <coughs> there is how competitive the two parties are. So we've had polarization in the past. If you remember that first chart I put up there about what it looked like in the late 19th, early 20th century, most of the times that we've had polarization in this country, one of the two parties has been substantially stronger than the other. Uh, which means it hasn't had to worry too much about working with the other party to get things done. So that the division of powers really hasn't mattered all that much because one of the parties had control of all of them and could move things along. Now that may be a considerable disadvantage of the minority, but at least government could function. But what happens when the parties get really closely competitive, right? Then what's the incentive to the parties? Well, to the smaller party, uh, or to the party that doesn't like what's happening, obstructionism suddenly be, becomes and makes sense, right? That becomes kind of the incentive that you have to stop things from happening. So let's look at what's happening in terms of just that competitiveness. How competitive are our two parties and what does it look like in historical perspective? Well, here's one way to look at it. This is the margin of victory in presidential races. So you go back to the 1920 to the 1936 period. You have about a 20%, this is a little too high. It's roughly a 20% difference, meaning you were winning these elections or losing them 60-40. Right? These were 60-40 elections. They weren't close. We move into this period, and we're running at about a 55-45 difference. But you look at the recent elections, they're really close. You know, the Obama people thought they won a huge victory with, what, they get 52% of the two-party vote, something like that. Well, that's a huge victory in the context of the way things have been recently. Historically, that's not a huge victory. What that means is that the parties in presidential election politics are pretty closely uh, competitive. How about the Senate majority? You look at the Senate, uh, and of course you know the 60-40 uh, on the filibuster. Well, there have been periods where it was not uncommon for the majority party to have a 20 or 20-plus 20 seat difference, and then sometimes it was bigger than that. You think about that great society and all everything that came out of the uh, Congress in uh, 1965. Uh, well, it was very nice for the Democrats because they had a two-thirds majority <laughs> in the House and they had a two-thirds majority in the Senate. And when you have majorities like that, yeah, you can get a lot done. So, but that was much more common, not that huge a majority, but pretty substantial majorities. We're playing around with pretty small majorities in the Senate right now, right? 53-47 is kind of roughly the balance between the parties, sometimes the Democrats, sometimes the Republicans. But neither party essentially had their total buster proof Senate, or at least not for often. The Democrats had them briefly. <clears throat> Another way to look at how competitive the parties are is to whether we have unified or divided government. Uh, we get, again, we've got three institutions, right? And they can be all in one party's hands, or they can be divided between the parties. Well, if we go back in time, what was common was one party to control the House, the Senate, and the presidency at the same time. Uh, what was uncommon 
only roughly about one out of five times during this historical period, and even less if you go back into the 19th century, was the control divided. Um, but what we've seen since 1976 is about two-thirds of the time that divided government, with one party controlling at least one of the institutions and the other party controlling two of the institutions. That means it's harder to get things done. And here's an indicator of it. And what I did for this, and this is CQ, this is not the very best indicator of kind of really whether a president's getting his or her agenda uh, done, but it is one indicator. And this is the percentage of the time when the president takes a position on a bill that the bill gets enacted. So it's always nice, you can see this is when you control the Congress, that's the president's party. It's always nice to control the Congress if you're the president. You're more likely to have high success rate. What's interesting is that in this period, from Eisenhower through Bush one, you still did pretty well if the Congress, one or both houses, was in the other party's hands. But recently, if the party, the other house is in the other party's hands, you don't do very well at all. So I think uh, what we're seeing really is the fruits uh, of a party realignment uh, that's rooted in reinforcing rather than disruptive or cross-cutting issues. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly so I don't take all of David's time. So here's how to think about party polarization, or how political scientists think about party uh, realignments. There was this big development in the 30s, the Depression, the crash, right? That made the majority party the Democratic Party. So it maintains that majority through the 40s, 50s, we get into the 60s, and then some issues kind of start cutting into that Democratic majority, the New Deal, New Deal what was called the New Deal Coalition. <clears throat> Civil rights comes in, and you get Northern Democrats versus Southern Democrats. Vietnam was disruptive, and it was mainly disruptive within the Democratic Party. That's largely where the anti-war, pro-war, at least in the early years, was fought out. But here's what's happened more recently in the realignment that we're living with today. Uh, so this simplified version starts in the 60s with civil rights. You know, when Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1965, he said he was signing away the South for a generation. I mean, he was wrong, probably a couple of generations. Yeah. Um, and, but then we start to get the religion cultural issue comes in. It comes in to an extent in the 60s, but it really gets pretty large in here. Uh, this is where we start getting the Christian right being very active in the Republican Party. This is the abortion issue, uh, lifestyle issues, and the disintegration of the uh, nuclear family and the like. But what's interesting is it kind of comes in on the same axis. It's not coming in in a cross-cutting way. It's reinforcing this because religion and the civil rights issues resonated most strongly in the South. Uh, this, uh, what's the y-axis? Uh, oh, there isn't one. This is time. Well, it could be. You know, it's the degree to which this, I'm trying to show whether it cross-cuts or reinforces. And then we get Reagan, size of government. You know, where are the pockets of really hostility to the federal government? In pretty much the same places where this was resonating and this was resonating. So you're, you got kind of, you're reinforcing each time kind of the sense that the other side is, is not my side, right? That's what's happening. Um, and that's why I think, and I, I was, this is my last <laughs> my last fact. We often hear gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is the problem. Gerrymandering is not the problem. Right? <laughs> this has been around for 200 years or whatever, and yeah, they didn't have computers, but they were always pretty darn good at this thing. There was too much at stake for gerrymandering to be casual. But 
this realignment has really ch changed the shape uh, of the electoral maps. So before the pockets of strong Republican and Democratic sentiment are, right? It's been geographical. We've relocated our partisanship around geography. And you can see this, you know, uh, here's the Northeast. Uh, and I, if I started back here, guess what? It's a Republican area, but I'm going to start in 74. And it's increasingly a Democratic area, uh, the Northeast. Uh, the South, increasingly Republican. Who sits, who occupies these seats in the South that aren't Republican? Those are minority, majority districts for the most part. Uh, this is for the African American members of Congress from the South. That's their districts, right? But if you think about it with this geographical distribution, it is really hard to figure out how in the South, in certain parts of the South, you could ever draw a district that would produce a Democrat. You look at Massachusetts. It's really hard to draw a district in Massachusetts that's Republican. Right? At one time, it was pretty easy to do. It's really hard to do. And it's filtered down in the states. Um, and David asked me to put this in so I can make this the last one. Uh, <laughs> right, what you see is the states increasing are becoming one-party states, and de decreasingly two-party states. And that's because of this geographical distribution of these opinions and the like. You know, you think about Massachusetts. We've got 40 senators in our state senate. How many are Republican? Four. If you gave Republicans the map and asked them to redraw the districts, I don't think they could double their number in the Senate. Uh, it's, it, it's the urban-rural difference between Republicans and Democrats, and it's the regional differences with the Democrats on the coasts uh, and the Republicans in the South, mountain states, and the like. And it's much more that that's going on here, uh, and that's much more enduring. You can't you can't solve this with the kind of the technical problem of geography, <clears throat> and uh, I'll pass it over to David at that point. So. I think I'm going to turn the lights yeah. Yeah. up. You know how to do that, dude? I'm going to guess that these are much Sorry. No, no. We might as well take this. I think you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> and of course, one of the reasons why Mo's analysis is um, short-sighted is that he doesn't account for salience. Salience is how deeply do I care about something? Is this something that at the end of the day, I'm going to try and convince my friends and neighbors that I'm right or they ought to do something about it? Is where the passion and energy in American politics comes from. It's when something is really salient. Well, if you ask somebody about a whole laundry list of, uh, of subjects, you can usually tell what the right answer or the wrong answer is. And if you ask me about uh, caring for the homeless, I'll tell you what's, well, we ought to care for them. Right? But if you ask me, uh, Tony says, hey, what, do you, what have you done lately? The answer is, I haven't done a damn thing, because it's not particularly salient. So simply taking somebody's response doesn't tell us as much as, what are you willing to do? How are you willing to act? And when we look at what people actually do, where are they spending their time? What news sources are they reading? Right? Who, to whom are they contributing? 
Are you working in a campaign on one side or the other? Are you attending church on a regular basis? If so, what kind of a church? We are a country that is becoming ever more polarized, and there's no obvious clean path back to the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and so forth. So it's not clear. I know that Archon would like us to talk about things that we can do to try and make it better. I don't think there's a whole lot that we can do to try and make it different, uh, make, make it better. Uh, we, Archon remembers, um, uh, Tom, I think you were here too, when, when uh, uh, Joe Nye and Phil Zalka and I edited a, a book called Why, uh, Why Americans Don't Trust Government. Uh, I think it was in the mid-90s when we wrote that book. And little did we know at the time that that would be one of the peak moments of trust and confidence <laughs> and love uh, for the U.S. government. <laughs> Uh, now it would be why? Why do they really, really not uh, trust the U.S. government? So I, I know that uh, I'm the guy who knows about Congress, and maybe you want to hear stories about the U.S. Congress and how dysfunctional it is, and maybe we can place blame on one party or on one sets of uh, one set of things or another. But I want to uh, I want to underscore something else that Tom uh, mentioned. Um, a lot of this is about competition, and because we are a 50-50 nation. It is so important, if you're the minority party, to hold your coalition together to be able to just scratch out a victory uh, every now and then. That the rules and procedures, which is the thing that I sort of study the most, the rules and procedures have become uh, completely unfair. The uh, uh, former speaker, Thomas Brackett, Reed from Maine uh, famously said that democracy stops at the door of the United States Congress. Uh, he said that in 1890, it's just as true today, right? Democracy stops at the door of the United States Congress. You can't run democratic institutions democratically, but you certainly can't do it when you're a 50-50 nation. Uh, it's also largely true um, that Gerrymandering or gerrymandering uh, doesn't tell as much of the story or do as much of the work in the data as one would do. Uh, although it's, uh, if we were in the business of trying to raise money, uh, we could get uh, hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to say that we were going to do a study of uh, gerrymandering because the funders want to fund that. What they don't want to hear is um, that it's something deeper in society, it's deeper culturally that has led to this Polarization. Um, you saw the numbers, uh, the, the graph on the DW nominate scores, the, the measures of polarization that, uh, that we had up. The Senate has become much more polarized, not at the same levels as the House, but become much more polarized. And yet there is no gerrymandering in the Senate, right? It is, there is, you can't gerrymander a senator out of a district because they represent the whole state. So gerrymandering explains only part of it. But it's interesting that it does explain part of it, and that's the surgical precision with which some of these maps can now be drawn. It's not just the surgical precision, though. It's knowing that the consumers who you're slicing and dicing are also themselves believing more deeply in one set of issues or another. Um, so I don't want to just necessarily talk about the Congress. I want to take a step back. Um, because not only do I do the whole U.S. Congress thing and the training of members, but uh, I, I really love my job working for, uh, for the state and local program. Um, a lot of the energy and excitement 
uh, of American politics is at a very local level. Uh, it's in the neighborhoods, in the city councils. Uh, it's where goods and services are really handled. Uh, the federal government does a lot, but not nearly as much uh, as the state and local government. And of course, as a percentage of GDP and employment, it's a state and local government where things are really happening and, and might continue to happen. Uh, we have uh, how many elected people in the United States? Nationwide, 511,000 elected officials in the United States. <laughs> uh, less than a few, fewer than 600, of course, at the federal level, but nationwide, 511,000 elected officials. In a two year period, just under two and a half million Americans will run for elective office. Right, so not appointed office, but actually running for elective office. Their name will be on a ballot. Uh, maybe they're trying to buy bumper stickers and, and <laughs> knowing how to run a campaign. Um, just under two and a half million people in a two-year cycle. The power and the energy of this elective uh, organisms is very much at the local level, grassroots. So, who is involved at the local level? True believers. People who are passionate about making the world a better place in one direction or another direction. Politics is, for the most part, run by and funded by activists. And who are activists? Activists are normal people like you and me who become activated around an issue. Something comes along and it is so salient to us that we are no longer going to sit on our couches and watch Modern Family, right? We're going to get up on Wednesday night and we're going to go to a meeting because we want to change the world in this direction. Activists are just like you and me. They become activated when something is salient. Right now, there's a lot at stake and a lot that's very salient. The big themes of American politics today are touching on the raw nerves that we have uh, in our daily lives. What is the proper role of government? What are we losing? How have we changed? What is the role of religion? It's all right there on the surface. The, uh, the easiest data point, the most fun data point that I look at when I'm thinking about uh, party unity in legislatures is not in the US Congress. Right? If you look at party unity measures, it usually is a percentage of the time in which I'll uh, say 85%, or you can do it at 75%, but 85% of one party is voting on one side, and 85% of the other party is voting on another side. That's a measure of party unity. And so when you have that kind of a division, that's a party unity vote. So as a percentage of all the votes in Congress that are party unity votes, it's gone up monotonically since 1970, which is the first year we have really good data um, because uh, after 1970, we have all of the amendments are recorded. So in Congress, it's gone up monotonically. <coughs> but this isn't a story about Congress. Because in every state for which we have data, party unity voting has increased since the mid since the early 1970s. It's gone straight up. What you see in the US Congress is what you see in every state legislature for which we have data. And think about it locally, in city councils where there are contested elections, right? Where there's still party competition, what do you see? Unity polarization. 
This isn't a story about Washington. It's about a story about where we are as a country. And uh, on that happy note, <laughs> what are some of the kinds of things that we can do to, to change it? Um, well, it, uh, most of them are, are fairly simple tricks that people are pointing to and say may make a difference. For example, right now, whoever is the Speaker of the House is somebody, who, whoever can get a majority of the votes in the House will become the Speaker. So it tends to be somebody who is chosen by the majority party. And then that person goes forward. So one proposal that Mickey Edwards uh, came up with years ago, has been preaching now for years and years, is to have the uh, Speaker of the House elected by a supermajority. So you'd have to get some Democrats and Republicans to agree on who the Speaker of the House is. I think it's a clever idea, and I don't think it would ever work, because you would then <laughs> begin operating the US Congress without a Speaker of the House. Uh, there are these proposals that maybe you should sit together as opposed to be divided by party. Unless you can force people to sit in certain places, they're going to self-select to speak or not. Or it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. There are some uh, simple mechanical things that we have uh, a little bit of hope are going to work. The, um, the top two primary system that's now in California uh, is a remarkable innovation. The idea is that you vote in a state primary for, uh, for somebody, and the top two vote-getters, regardless of party, will go on to the general election. So it won't necessarily be pitted Democrat against Republican. In some of the work that I've done on um, polarization in congressional districts, one of the strongest unanticipated outcomes was that you have less polarization. It makes sense in retrospect, but I didn't expect it when I first started doing the research. You have less polarization in districts in which the party primary is close in time to the general election. And the reason is that when you have to run to the left or run to the right, you're trying to bring out the vote uh, from your party primary, from your party base. If the general election and the, and the party primary are close in time, you have to have media strategies and messaging strategies that anticipate that maybe the general election audience is watching as well. So, when those two are close in time, you tend to have uh, members of Congress who are more accurately representing uh, the interests of their district. So there's some of those things that uh, can happen. Um, Tom didn't talk about his book, but of course a big part of this is the, uh, the way we learn about politics, which is often through friends and so forth, but really it's driven by the media and how we consume the media. Now, the media just doesn't exist out there uh, you know, if a journalist writes in a, in a, in a forest and nobody uh, reads it, the journalist may as well not be writing, right? So the tree might fall and make a sound, but a journalist, if you don't have an audience, is really not making a sound. So we have to think about that interaction between the media and people who are consuming or listening to or reading the media. Uh, and we are now so overwhelmed with multiple media sources that we choose to hear what we want to hear. Instead of being confused, we consume that which makes us feel more comfortable, more secure. And so we're not hearing the other argument. 
the other side. I don't know how we change that. I don't know how we change that. So I don't have a lot of good news uh, about <laughs> how this becomes unchecked or unbalanced. And I know that some of you want to talk about Congress and the presidency, and maybe we can do that now in Q&A. Uh, this is an exciting time to be studying this. And if you are in the policy world, it's also a series of real difficult challenges to, to get things done. Um, one final word now, putting on again my hat as somebody who does state and local government. Congress is, is completely deadlocked. They're not doing any serious work. But there's a lot of good activity that's happening in the states. And maybe some of that good activity in the states is because they're not deadlocked. And there is money in the states. State budgets right now are doing very well. Thank you. Uh, California is no longer in crisis. Massachusetts is doing relatively well. There's a lot of policy activity going on at the state and local level. So if you're interested in changing things through the world of policy, right now Washington is broken. Uh, and the states are where we can make it. I agree with David that if you want to look for vitality, you've got to look at the local level. And that seems to come through also <clears throat> looking at citizen satisfaction levels, where they tend to be higher when they look at their local level, government national level, <clears throat> which is a complete reverse of China, where we've <laughs> been doing <laughs> yeah, opinion yeah. surveys since 2003, and they're very satisfied with central government and very dissatisfied with the local government. But I, I just want to uh, follow up on your your last comment because, Tom, I haven't read your new book, but I did also want to ask you to talk a little bit. Is there a linkage in your new book to the polarization and the problems you're talking about? I mean, in the sense that everybody's now talking, we can live in a bubble. <coughs> I never have to move out of my safety zone anymore. But I'd like to know a little bit more. That seems that's a very simple explanation. Yeah. I don't understand what has driven that, uh, what, is, you know, what is following what. I mean, is it that the new media has driven this polarization, or did we get the polarization and then the kind of new media moves in with that, which then sort of perpetuates it? I, I, don't, I don't, sort of asking you what is the dynamic of what is create, you know, creating the situation and perpetuating it. And I guess this is in your new book, but I haven't read it. Well, actually, it's not, but I can, oh, okay. I, I, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to it. Um, the, um, if you had two political scientists who were studying media and polarization who were sitting here, you would probably have a 50-50 chance of having them disagree on the answer to your question. Uh, but what I think is actually going on at our I think it's working in, in a number of different ways. Um, and and they, they kind of touch on the way we, we expect people to behave, right? So if you're one of those people that David was talking about for whom they've been activated, uh, there's something out there they really care about, right? Uh, what you find among those individuals is that they self-select mm -hmm. into a lot of the partisan media. Uh, they're going to where they get confirmation uh, that what they're doing is the right thing to be doing, right? 
But then you get some people uh, who kind of, they don't stumble into these things exactly, mm -hmm. right? But it's, it's like any kind of repetition. If you keep hearing the same thing over and over again. So um, you're either going to stay with it or you're going to leave and go find something else that's more congenial. Probably also repetitive, but congenial, right? And what we've seen with uh, Fox, uh, MSNBC actually has happened more quickly, uh, is that Republicans tend to stay on Fox. Democrats tend to stay with MSNBC. Oftentimes they just kind of get there accidentally. It's not like they, you know, for the same reason that a lot of conservatives kind of stumbled on Stephen Colbert and it took him a couple of weeks to figure out that he wasn't a conservative, right? So, so now if you look at the Col Colbert audience, it looks exactly like the John Stewart audience. It's very heavily Democratic. For the most part, the Republicans have said, this isn't my, this isn't my tune, this is not the one. So, and there what you find is that repetitive exposure to that pushes you, as you would imagine, toward the extreme. So I think, I think both of those processes are going on. Uh, but there are some kind of other things that are also happening to kind of leaven that effect, right? Is that most people still, although the number is shrinking, most people still are exposed to a range of sources. So it's actually a fairly small percentage that only go to Fox or only go to MSNBC. The, the numbers are increasing, uh -huh. right? But, but it's still the case that most of us, even if we watch Fox or MSNBC, and even though I lean Democratic, I actually prefer Fox. I think it's more interesting. Uh, uh, but you don't need to know why. But, uh, but um, you know, but most of us, you know, we still tap into multiple sources. So we're, we're still hearing some of the other side, right? And the research on that is really pretty clear. If you hear some of the other side, that tends to moderate your views. Uh, the minute you start to get out of that and into an echo chamber, that's when you're not only reinforced, but you're more likely to continue down that path toward the extreme. So just one thing, is there an age differential in this? When, if I look at the way my kids consume news, yeah. it's very different from yeah. the way I yeah. consume. Yeah. And they're very adept at quickly finding yeah. choices yeah. online, yeah. and then really sticking with that. Yeah. Is, is there any research on that? Yeah, there is. and um, the. The age group that has the most preference for the highest, the greatest preference for partisan lace news are young people. Uh, roughly about 40% of young people prefer something like a Jon Stewart to a conventional news outlet. And then you get over the age of 65 and they're overwhelmingly still in the traditional media arena. Right. Yeah. I come at this from uh, more of a sort of a political sociology, why is this happening kind of perspective. I suspect maybe uh, somewhat different from the perspective you guys are doing. And my, uh, and, and, and the answer that, that I tend to come up with is uh, that there are different narratives. Uh, the, the, the narratives are so different associated with the Republicans and the Democrats that it's almost as if they're speaking different languages yeah. and, and, and they don't understand each other's language. Yeah. And so that what's, and, and the media is uh, oblivious to this difficulty. And so there's no real effort to translate uh, or to, and, and, and unless there's an effort to translate, uh, it becomes impossible to 
get them on the same playing field. <laughs> so they, 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 they almost deny that the other team is there. And, and so they, whatever, whatever, you know, they, I can't, you know, it's like they, they, they can't hear what they're saying because right. they, they cannot, it's not that they're deaf, but it's, they don't understand it. Um, and, uh, and, and that's very unfortunate, of course. And, and, and it's, uh, you know, I, I think that if there was an effort to, to, to translate, uh, that, that, that we might, uh, you know, we might get off this gridlock. But there doesn't seem to be any uh, effort to do that by the, uh, well, I mean, you guys, political scientists, it's the description of, of, of what, what is, rather than why what is, is. And, and, and I, that's, so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I, I mean it, it's very interesting to, to see what is. But I think we, we need this why question also. And, and uh, that's, I guess, a comment. Uh, I, I don't know whether any, I mean, I, I could go on, but I don't think it's appropriate for me to go on. I mean, because I'm only a, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to take up too much time. Well, I, th I think what you're saying is very, it's interesting. It sounds right to me, right? I'd, um, I have no idea how things get translated. I don't know if that's how things actually get changed. I think big movements in American history are um, uh, movements around conversion, uh, around um, a conversion about what do we think is the right way to approach each other or big problems and so forth. I don't, and I, I, it feels like we are going, if there's going to be major change at the national level, that it'll be part of a larger movement, that it'll be part of a religious movement or a cultural movement. But when we're this locked in, um, uh, you know, it, it will be another great awakening or it will be a civil war or it will be, uh, I mean, the issues around a civil war, the issues around, um, uh, around the New Deal programs, I, th I think there will be a conversion as opposed to uh, a narrative that people can sort of hear each other in. Could I, let me add one thing to that. I, um, even though I'm a Democrat, um, the one thing that I pray for is a viable Republican Party. Um, and uh, that I think our system gets in trouble if we don't have two uh, viable parties. And uh, I was going to talk about um, 1912 and the significance of 1912. Um, what happened in 1912 is that basically the Republican Party killed itself. Uh, you know, when you think back to 1912, this is the bull moose candidacy of Teddy Roosevelt and in the popular lore, you know, it's his ambition to get back in the arena, be on top of the, of the heap again. Uh, but what was really going on was a huge battle within that party between the progressives and the marketplace Republicans largely aligned with big business, right? And the big business side of the Republican Party won that. So Taft got the nomination. And it was not just simply winning the nomination. They basically said, we don't want you progressives around. And one of those progressives, by the way, was Harold Ickes, <laughs> who ended up in, in Roosevelt's New Deal, as did a number of them. Um, and But the importance of that, if you think about this spectrum on which our parties operate, Right. Uh, you had the Democratic Party, which was the minority party at the time. You had this very large Republican Party, a really a dominant majority. But the faction on the wing won out, not the faction in the center. It was the progressive faction that was the centrist part of the Republican Party. That battle is going on now within the Republican Party. Uh, 
If the centrist wing of the party wins out, we're going to have better days ahead. Uh, if the extreme wing wins out, I think the Republican Party is going to wither. Uh, they're not going to die because you don't die in a two-party system. You almost live forever, right? So you know, they're, they're, they found, they found the, the problem of aging. They figured that one out. But this is going to be a very weak party, uh, especially when you combine that with what the demographics where we're moving as a country demographically. There's no way that they can be competitive. And then they're going to have a lot of trouble moving back to the center because of who's in control of that party and kind of the dominant ideologies and thoughts. So to me, and this goes with David's thing about the things that can happen, this is, that's not a big shock to the system, but that's something that could happen within the system that I think we all have a stake in and we all ought to root for uh, that piece of the, of the Republican Party to, to win out, that the Christie wing, you know, you better hope that happens, right? Because even if, even if they, the, the other wing, then they're going to be disruptive, hugely disruptive, right? They're going to be the permanent minority, but you can be really disruptive in our system. If you're a permanent extreme minority uh, within that system, that would be hugely disruptive because it would be working out in some of the states where right. you come closer to being able to get control in certain localities where you get control. It, 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 uh, we've got a lot of stake in keeping the Republican Party in, in decent shape. Yeah, and, and if you have conversations, we don't have the opportunity in Massachusetts to have conversations with Republicans, but if you, you know, pick up the phone and talk to people in other parts of the country, the battle for the Republican Party is happening right now between now and the time of their state conventions. Uh, for a, a state such as um, Michigan, for example, uh, it, it's down to the school committee level as to whether it's going to be a, a Tea Party person or if it's going to be a relatively centrist Republican. And the amount of energy there, I can't describe for you the, the, the hatred that exists within the party as opposed to towards the Democrats. Um, the real hatred is, is, is against somebody who you think should be in your own camp, uh, and that's where it's happening. So between now and uh, early 20, well, let's just say into late spring of, of 2014, uh, at a very, very local level, this battle is going to be fought uh, as to who's going to have the nomination for county commissions, for school boards, uh, for land use policy planning boards, and so forth. You're in charge. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, thinking back to media, because um, so I'm someone I've worked in state government for 27 years, and um, I don't tend to watch Fox News. I started going to a gym where I have to watch it, um, and um, I, my jaw is just on the floor all the time. It's like I I know a fair amount about a lot of public policy issues and what they are telling people in the most emotional and dramatic terms is wrong. You know, it's just, it's so ideological and incorrect. And so I think Roger Ailes is brilliant and he has, is responsible for a lot of this polarization. So a question I have for you guys is, say the more moderate wing of the Republican Party does win out, does that influence Fox at all and Ailes? Because um, I think they've been such an agent for Serious time. Yeah, no, I, I do have a view on that. And Fox has already started to reposition itself a little bit toward the center, uh, in part because I think they do recognize 
the destructive impulse uh, on, the, on the far right of the party. Uh, now, the way that they do it, they don't say that we're going to reposition ourselves ideologically. They, what they say is we're going to put more of our resources into news gathering and straight news reporting, right? So uh, that's the way they kind of announced their repositioning. Uh, but in, fa in fact, I think, I think they have a real stake uh, in that as well. And I, th I think they see it. I, I think Ailes sees that very clearly. Uh, almost all of the kind of the gurus see what see what's happening there, and and the problem is, for the Tea Party really works is at much more at the grassroots level. Uh, now it's had a lot of money behind it, right? We, we know that, so it wasn't like Occupy Wall Street, which was just a, almost entirely a grassroots, and which the reason it's almost dead now is it didn't make those connections that it needed to make, uh, and there was a lot of money that was funneled into the into the Tea Party. Uh, you know, from, from big backers and the like. So there's always been more of a connection there. But fundamentally, I think that leadership uh, of the Tea Party is, is decentralized around a set of ideas. So there's a core there, but different. I just want to uh, disagree with part of your answer, which has nothing to do with the media, and that is that um, the, the Tea Party is a combination of the evangelical wing of the Republican Party, which is uncomfortable with uh, the way that the party is socially moving, and the Libertarian Party. And there was a very conscious move from Libertarians into the Tea Party. Uh, so the Libertarian Party, I don't think we ought to think of it as a third party in the traditional sense right now, because the funding and the leadership from the traditional Libertarian Party has now moved into into the Tea Party. Um, the first time I uh, came, uh, I did an analysis that now in the 1980s when the term limits movement was uh, big, uh, and I was at the University of Michigan as a graduate student, and it passed 70, 72 percent uh, supported this um, this uh, initiative to uh, have have term limits in the state of Michigan, and it wasn't until much later that we were able to see where the money came from. Uh, after the thing, had, after it had been passed, and it was largely funded by two people I'd never heard of before. They ran an organization called Term Limits USA. I had no idea where this money, I'd never heard of these two before. They were the Koch brothers. And uh, the Koch brothers were funding it not because they were Republicans, which of course they are now, but because they were very much the backers of the Libertarian Party. And one of the Koch brothers had been, at the national level, on national ticket, the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. And so the term limits movement was not to try and, you know, uh, control. Uh, it, it was really a, a, a way to try and get the Libertarians into office. Well, that wing of the Libertarian Party is now the funding and energetic part of the Tea Party movement. So it's a, a very interesting debate, you know, struggle that's happening within the Republican Party. Somebody winning something uh, with this polarization. I mean, where, where is that stake of power that is not being used? Who is, who is taking that for, for, for its own purposes or interests? I don't understand the question. Yeah, I mean, this is this deadlock uh, brings things to uh, to be stuck. Uh, so power is not. So maybe maybe the states are winning some power that is not in use in the national. Uh, Does gridlock create a vacuum? Yeah, yeah. right. I guess yeah. is the, is the idea. Who is, who, who, who 
which sector of the economy or the pol pol uh, politic uh, sector? Who, who is who is really? I, I don't. I don't think there's a single winner that you could point to. Um, you know, I, I, traditional story is right, and that is that moneyed interests either can help to push things forward or stop things from happening. That's certainly a huge part of what's happening. Money's always been important, but is extremely important right now. Um, now I, if you have a limited size of government view, aren't you winning? When if you have if you have a limited size of government view, yeah, you're winning. You're winning, right? Yeah, because well, it frees up yeah. the state, but not in the classic sense. I mean the. The classic sense of our system is that it's an inherently conservative system, right? That you have to have these concurrent majorities to get anything done, which which makes it harder to get it done, uh, and and therefore the status quo weighs more heavily than some future opportunities or alternatives, right? But I I kind of sign a little bit with David here that this is so dysfunctional that it's hard to see who's winning in. Uh, you know, th this is not a clear victory for the status quo. Uh, now, I do think that the, the kind of the radical Republicans in the House caucus in a certain way have won in the, in the way you're talking about, right? I mean, we do have less government, right? <laughs> and, we, we, and we not only have less government in a relative sense, we have it in an absolute sense, right? So. <laughs> Um, and uh, but but they've kind of come at it hatchet wise. I mean, right. you know, <laughs> this is not a fine tuned no. reshaping of the federal government, right? This is this is a pretty blunt instrument that's being used. And in that sense, yes. it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to figure out exactly how much they've won by just the the sheer kind of reduction. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess uh, in, instead of saying who's won or lost, uh, 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 I think it's more helpful to think about implications, because, and and uh, one implication, which I think many of our international students have been talking a lot about, is that the U.S. is um, not exactly the beacon for uh, how how government ought to work, right? Uh, Churchill said, of course, you know, democracy is the worst system of the government except for all the others. Well, our particular form of democracy may not be the very best particular form of <laughs> democracy at this particular time. Uh, and I think that the U.S. role um, in terms of hard power is certainly going to be diminished uh, on the international stage. Our military is going to be in retrenchment for quite some time. And I don't know what the implications are for soft power. Um, so there's a there's a little bit of a vacuum that is certainly going to be created there um, internationally. So the last question. Uh, might be a naive approach to this, but uh, how much polarization? How does the polarization break down in terms of age? Like are the sort of younger generations, the more you know, tech savvy, whatever it is, but are they less polarized? Like is it naive to believe that maybe in a sense we'll outgrow? Where we are now? I don't actually know the data on that. Um, they're I don't less party know. identified. Yeah, they're they're less party ID'd, but that's also because they want to think of themselves as less party identified. So, if you ask a, a young person, "Are you Democrat, Republican, or Independent?" they're far more likely than somebody 20 years older to say, "Yeah, I'm you know I'm an Independent." But when you look at how they behave, right? Where's their money going to? For whom are they voting? They are as partisan or more than the older generation. So, uh, so you know, because it's it's not 
it's not fashionable to call yourself a Democrat or Republican in many circles. We all want to be thought of as independents, and our young independent kids are, but my daughters, I don't know if they're ever going to vote for a Republican. Well, one of them definitely will. <laughs> so, that's because that's of her boyfriend. <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, one of the, this is one of the areas that's kind of interesting if you're an opinion analyst. Um, young people don't pay as much attention to public affairs. They don't pay as much attention to news. Um, and one of the things is that a lot of these opinions that have, around the polarized issues, uh, individual positioning to a degree is learned. Right. So if you're not paying attention, you don't quite know where you ought to stand. Right. So there's a lot of noise in the opinion polls around young people. Uh, a lot more don't know, kind of they position themselves in the middle because they're not sure. But in some ways it's because they are not paying enough attention to be cued. And then you go to the behavioral indicators that David is talking about, which are much better for young people, much better indicators of kind of where they are politically, where's the money going, who are they voting for. And in that way, they pretty much look like almost everybody except for older people who are very Republican now uh, in a relative, uh, in, certainly in a relative sense, given where they were 40 years ago, surely. Uh, but it's, it's the old, can you get out, do you do? Uh, so theirs is primarily attitudinal, not behavioral. Mm. Right. And a lot of them don't have money. Right. You know, they're, they're senior mm. citizens and the like. So it, it's not like they got money to kind of toss around into politics they're, they're they're trying to make a living just trying to get you know get through life so uh, those two groups do look a little different depending on what indicator you're looking at that's great well uh, I'm afraid we're out of time but I think we'll everybody will hang around for at least a, a few minutes after that'd be great yeah. um, to kind of converse more informally but I was gonna say the food and yeah there's food <coughs> and uh, looks like a lot of coffee if you're uh, kind of a late-night person and even a little bit of wine so uh, please join me in thanking David and Tom for an excellent